Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We're stepping away from sports talk on this edition of the podcast because we have something much bigger than sports to discuss. On Tuesday, people who have not voted early will go to the polls to vote in probably the most important election we have seen in a long time. Some people believe that the fate of the country is at stake. Republican Donald Trump, the incumbent president, looks for a second term as he faces former Vice President Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee. It has been a contentious campaign. There are many issues dominating the campaign, none more so than the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me to discuss the campaign are two reporters who are on the beat covering it, and they are former Daily Gazette staff writers who are each making their second appearance on the podcast. Please welcome Jake LaHutt, political reporter for Business Insider, and Brett Samuels, who covers the White House for The Hill. Gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast, and I appreciate you taking some uh, time to talk to me. Uh, I know you guys have been very busy uh, leading up to this election, so uh, Jake and uh, Brett, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. You're good to hear me. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, let's uh, let's get right to it here. We're closing in on election day. Uh, what has been uh, covering this campaign been like for you guys? We'll start with Jake. Yeah, um, I mean, I, it started for me when uh, I was at a newspaper in New Hampshire called the Keene Sentinel, where I was doing. Um, you know, a bunch of reporting on the early stages of the Democratic primary, uh, and then I joined Business Insider right before New Hampshire voted. So it's been a bit of a weird turnaround between um, lots of in-person events, kind of getting a feel for, you know, their candidate styles, people's kind of tactile impressions of them, and then, you know, post-March, with the pandemic, uh, obviously a lot less travel. I've only used a physical notebook, you know, out in the field to report on stories like twice since then. Um, so the, the kind of weird, you know, like matrix space of cable news, Twitter, how the candidates are doing TV advertising, uh, the Biden campaign for a while was doing a lot of these virtual events that could be pretty interesting, but like no one really knew they were happening outside of people who were really dialed in to, you know, politics news all the time. So it's just been a, a bit of a, a kind of a whiplash for the most part. And that's what's really led me to take a big interest in, you know, a variety of, of polling and public survey techniques, looking at how the polls are different from 2016, kind of giving folks a better idea of what, you know, was misleading about certain state polls in that election and what pollsters are doing differently this time. And that's really the best chance we've got. And then, you know, the, the most recent thing has been following these early vote totals, which has just been, um, you know, really fascinating to see people really eager to uh, either vote early in person or to get their mail-in votes sent in, you know, really, really early because of concerns uh, about the postal service. So, uh, yeah, going into the end here, and like, it kind of just feels like uh, on the one hand, like it's the campaign started, you know, just a couple of days ago, and on the other hand, it feels like years have passed since, uh, you know, I actually last spoke to, to voters. 
What about you, Brett? Because you're, you're right, you're right there in, in the White House. Uh, you and you, you just recently traveled with the president to uh, New Hampshire and Maine. Right. So, yeah, I've I've been covering the White House, you know, for the last year and a half or so, and so that's sort of entailed covering the president's campaign as he goes along, and obviously he's sort of ramped up that activity sort of at the start of this year, and then obviously more so um, once once it became clear who his opponent would be, but. It's really, you know, the pandemic has really sort of altered, uh, you know, how much I've been able to sort of get out and uh, and be on the trail and everything. Uh, instead, it's sort of been every every month or two, I've I've been fortunate enough to to go and be on the trail with either the president or the vice president, and it's just been kind of an interesting time, you know, seeing how they kind of navigate really sort of a changed landscape with the pandemic. Um, or I guess the way they've approached it, it really hasn't been changed too much. The president obviously still has these big rallies with, with tons of people and the vice president similarly, although he doesn't draw the same crowds, will still have these larger events where people aren't really spaced out too much. So it's been it's been interesting to be out there and obviously it's it's an election unlike one that certainly we've experienced given sort of the the uh, the pandemic and the other circumstances around it. So uh It'll, it'll be interesting to see, obviously, the president has sort of been the underdog for the most part in the polls, and that's something of a comfortable position for him, I guess, based on where he was in 2016. And so I think we're all at this point just kind of waiting for Tuesday, waiting to see whether or not he's able to, uh, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat twice or, or if this time you know, the polls are are a little more accurate or or what's going to happen. But certainly it's been interesting just to see him holding these big rallies and kind of relying on what got him into the White House the first time around, trying to make that work for him the second time. Yeah, let's talk about the polls more about that, uh, Brett. Um, You know, know, Joe Biden has been leading most of the polls over Trump that we've seen. Of course, four years ago, Hillary Clinton had seemed like a comfortable lead in the polls over Trump. And we know what happened with that election. Uh, Do you do you think Biden is taking not taking anything for granted this time? Did the Democrats learn a lesson from 2016? Yeah, I think you know there's definitely a lot of hand wringing happening in these final days, just because of what happened in 2016, where Democrats sort of felt like they uh, they were on a good path and that they were in good shape. Obviously, there was a lot made of the states that Hillary Clinton didn't visit. Uh, in Wisconsin and Michigan, as a couple examples, in the closing days. And we've seen Joe Biden more than any state. He's been in Pennsylvania. He is in Michigan today, Saturday, with uh, former President Obama. And so certainly I think there's there's a lot being made of, you know, trying not to make those same mistakes twice. And I would note that, you know, the polls sort of tightened in that 2016 race. In the closing race, you obviously had the – the James Comey letter that kind of uh, shifted things in the closing stretch, but we haven't really seen that kind of, you know, big event that has erased Joe Biden's lead or really tightened things up on a national scale. Certainly in some of the swing states, things are a little closer, but uh, I think you'll see in these closing days, you know, Joe Biden's in Michigan, he's in Pennsylvania. Um, they're, they're trying not to, to make the same mistake twice. I think. Jake, what do you see about, about the polls? Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to get a little in, in the weeds here, at this point in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton's lead over Trump nationally was only 3.4 points. And for a number of these national surveys, that was, you know, right on or within the margin of error. 
Biden's lead in the national polling averages has been holding pretty steady at eight or nine points. Um, so to give folks, you know, a bit of an idea here, where the polls were really wrong in 2015, it wasn't in the national ones. It was in, uh, it was a mix of a lack of state polling, and then there were a couple state polls that were pretty far off. Um, in terms of methodology, a couple things have changed depending on the pollster. Um, the main thing is, you know, the way it was done for a long time, back when everyone used landlines, was you essentially use a random number generator, call random landline numbers, ask the folks, you know, plan to vote for your party registration, all that stuff. But what that led to uh, was one, because of just the way population density works and with these randomized phone numbers, you were tending to get a bit more of a skew of people who lived in denser urban or suburban areas compared to rural areas. And that used to be fine before, but what Trump did in 2016 that went a little under the radar and that we all talk about now is the way he consolidated uh, white voters without a college degree. And in rural areas, that meant that instead of a 60-40 split for you know people voting Republican, that ended up going to you know 70-30 or 80-20. And that meant that this, what, what they call sampling in polls, which is kind of how they weight different demographics and what you get to the final number, that was also off in those states. So that, 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 that's really shifted this time around. There's a different weighting that pollsters do on education. Um, and then you start to look at the map for Trump and you know how he could win this time around. So first of all, Trump would need a polling error that would have to be twice as bad or worse from 2016 for him to have a shot this time around. Uh, the second thing is, excuse me, that with Biden uh, having a couple advantages that Hillary Clinton didn't, namely that he performs very well among seniors, he does better with white voters without a college degree than she did, uh, it's also put some states into play that weren't for Democrats necessarily the last time. Democrats are in very good shape in Arizona. They have a strong Senate candidate there, uh, and Biden has largely been able to ride on his coattails, uh, with, with that being Mark Kelly, the former astronaut. And he's also uh, had quite comfortable leads in those uh, Rust Belt states that I was talking about, Michigan and Wisconsin. So, you know, while you'll see in the campaign stops that Biden's dedicating a lot of time there, you did have President Obama in Florida, which is another common battleground state. But ultimately, Trump needs to kind of have a number of things go right at the same time. Principally, he needs to basically do a three-for-three three sweep of Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida to start. If he loses North Carolina or Florida, it's basically over for him in terms of a path to getting the 270 electoral votes he needs. If Biden's able to win Arizona, that starts to make things a little more complicated for Trump. Uh, and, you know, really I think what is going to be tricky about election night is, you know, folks at home, you'll be seeing these polls, with Biden lead, you'll be seeing these early vote totals uh, that are going to skew quite heavily towards Democrats, mainly because of the way President Trump is treated voting by mail and kind of drawing skepticism around whether it's uh, above board. And that could end up really hurting him uh, in, in a couple areas. But the flip side of that is the, the, the voting day numbers may look very, very heavily Republican. So what we prepared for and you know, most newsrooms, I think, have done this, is 
There are definitely scenarios where the race could be called on election night through a mix of polling and through vote tallying. Uh, especially, like I said, if Trump loses a key state like North Carolina or Florida, that's pretty much ball game. And, and Joe Biden, you can say pretty comfortably he's going to win. Um, on the other hand, you know, you have it tight in those races. The county mail-in votes of Pennsylvania looks like it's going to be a bit of a nightmare. So uh, it could stretch, you know, well, well into the week. And that's when you're going to see this mix of exit polls. Uh, I had an interview with a guy who runs the Fox News decision desk, and they have a new system where instead of old exit polls, they did a roaming survey of over 100,000 voters going up to Election Day to figure out who's voting in person, who's voting by mail. And that almost has a model of how you can dissect uh, the in-person versus, you know, early vote totals. So, and it's a lot of, like, <laughs> math and crazy terms like that, but I think the polling overall is in better shape than it was in 2016, and again, even if it is wrong, it would have to be twice as wrong for Trump to really have the, the Electoral College back in play for him. Yeah. Well, we have some more uh, questions. I have, uh, obviously, we talked about a lot of issues. We'll talk about uh, the coronavirus issue, the Supreme Court nomination. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast. You're with Ken Schott, along with Jake LaHutt and Brett Samuels. I'm Dr. Howard Zucker, New York State's Health Commissioner. It's flu season, and it's always a good idea to get the flu shot. But this year, it's more important than ever. A flu shot won't prevent COVID-19, but it will lower your chances of getting seriously sick from the flu. If you do get sick, the shot can lessen your symptoms and help you feel better sooner. The last thing you or the healthcare system needs during this pandemic is a bad flu season. So please, protect yourself and your community. Get a flu shot now. Back on the Parting Shots podcast, I'm Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. We're talking uh, presidential election. Uh, the election day is Tuesday with uh, Jake LaHutt of Business Insider and uh, Brett Samuels of The Hill, both uh, former Daily Gazette uh, staff writers. So they're out in the field watching this, covering this election. So uh, as I mentioned, we have a lot of issues. That, um, uh, the main one right now seems to be the coronavirus pandemic that's um, <clears throat> continuing to surge. And as we tape this podcast on Saturday, uh, nearly 230,000 people have died. Uh, we're, as I said, we're seeing a surge in cases. Trump, who, who contracted the virus along with several members of his staff, claims the pandemic is going to disappear. Uh, will Trump's handling of the pandemic uh, cost him the re-election? Uh, Brett, we'll start with you. Yeah, it's sort of been, the pandemic has really been sort of the president's Achilles heel this whole year. Um, you could I think make the argument that in January and February before the pandemic really took hold in the U.S. that the president was on a pretty good trajectory for re-election. Um, but, how, but I guess seven, eight months later um, and more than 200,000 Americans dead, things have certainly changed. And the concerning thing I think for a lot of the president's allies is that he just kind of refuses to take it seriously, even though it is clearly uh, worsening in a lot of parts of the country. We saw Friday, for example, you know, he went to Wisconsin where, uh, you know, as much as any state in the country, they're dealing with this explosion of cases and, and issues with hospital capacity. But he's still sort of stuck to his script of, you know, we're rounding the corner, we'll have a vaccine soon. But even without a vaccine, this thing is going away. Um, just sort of ignoring the reality on the ground. And I think there's there's a lot of concern that that's 
that that's sort of going to do him in, that he's not going to win over new voters by continuing to downplay the virus. There was some hope, I think, among some people close to him that when he himself contracted the virus, that maybe it would be sort of this uh, sort of this personal awakening that maybe he would take it seriously and understand, you know, the toll it's taken on a lot of people. But uh, we really didn't see that at all. You know, even while he was in the hospital, he, he wanted to go out and, and go for something of a joyride uh, outside the hospital to wave to supporters. And we certainly haven't seen a change in tone in, in the roughly one month since he contracted the virus. So it's it's really the pandemic and his handling of it have been Trump's sort of big stumbling block, this whole campaign. And we continue to see him, you know, not change tact at all. So I think uh, it's fair to say that if he loses this election, uh, a lot of people will look back and say, you know, had had he done things differently, had he taken this pandemic seriously, maybe that would have uh, altered the outcome. Jake, I mean, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to put it better than than Brett did there, just with uh, the the attitude and approach Trump has had. It also folds into, I think, it's been a head scratcher for a lot of Republicans in that I believe back in twenty sixteen. You know, Trump certainly had the same propensity for rolling scandals that we've seen the last four years. But what he also did was he had these kind of impassioned pleas for, you know, for coal miners, for people hit hard by the opioid epidemic. And you hear a lot less of that from him this time around. Um, I know in the last debate, you know, he, he kind of tried to do that, but he did his usual riff on how, like, wind turbines kill birds. He's going on a lot about the Hunter Biden Ukraine stuff, which is what led to his impeachment in the first place. And I, I don't think people, like most people who are, you know, going about their lives are not dedicated to consuming news all the time, have a very hard time to, like figuring out what he's talking about. I mean, the, the kind of extremely online nature of a lot of the, the Trump campaign. Oops. Got an ambulance here that closes window. Sorry about that. Um, They're coming to get you. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the just the, the lack of persuasion has really, I think, befuddled a, a lot of Republicans who, for example, you know, care about things like keeping majority control of the Senate. Uh, it's just been a kind of long line of Trump doubling down and downplaying the pandemic and going after these niche either culture issues or what are frankly, um, you know, kind of conspiracies that are relegated to, you know, right-wing news sites and a couple of the Fox News opinion shows, you know. So uh, it's just really been an issue that I think the has extended to how he's, you know, treated the virus. But if you told someone a number of months ago, like, hey, you know, a month before the election, Trump is going to get the virus, he's going to be hospitalized, and then we're going to set a world record for cases in a single day, like a week before. I'm crazy. Like, people would think, like, how is this guy going to win? So I, I think we've kind of gotten in this rut of, and when I say we, I just mean, you know, occasionally, uh, certainly people in the media, but just in your casual conversations of, we kind of convince ourselves that the laws of gravity do not apply to Trump. And, you know, I think that that's a bit too narrow of a view and that we have seen this costing him. You know, the, the only counter argument to that is that his approval rating is about the same as it's been 
the entire time he's held office. And, you know, you would still have things break for him. But, uh, yeah, I just think that because of the way the virus just, you know, intrudes on everyone's daily life, uh, whether it's you having to be at risk going out as you know an essential worker or not being able to see your family, you know, not going into the office, uh, the shortages of products. Trump doesn't have ways to defend against that. You know, he's tried the H1N1 stuff, but do you remember a toilet paper shortage during the swine flu? No. So it's just been a long line of stuff. And like Brett said, I think there was the hope that people thought, you know, he, he would pivot after getting the virus and risking the lives of his family and staff. But instead, it was very similar to what you saw in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro, where Trump used his recovery from the virus as a way to say, look, it's no big deal. And uh, I'm just not sure there's any evidence that strategy is working. I think the one thing that really stunned me, maybe and stunned I don't know if it stunned Trump supporters, but yeah, no, probably stunned you know, the Democratic uh, Party was the the, uh, the political ad that comes out with Trump saying he took the virus, took on the virus head on. It's like, do you really want to brag about that? Yeah, you know, but like, again, I think that the other thing you have to understand about people who are, you know, still like pretty adamant Trump supporters is a lot has been invested in defending him over the last four years. I mean, just because of how singular of a force he is in the culture, how he comes up in conversations, if you defended Trump through all this stuff before, think of it like in economic terms, like a sunk cost, you know, like you've pumped all this money into this car you love, and the car might be getting kind of beat down and impractical, and your friends think you're a little crazy for wanting to do it, but, like, you're already... You're locked in. You're invested. You're not going to give up that car just because someone says you should be convinced to do so. So it's less about the Trump supporters kind of having, you know, some sort of um, kind of like awakening or pivot from what they've been doing than it is what you see in Biden focusing on, which are these people who were kind of your hold your nose Trump voters in 2016, particularly, uh, you know, relatively affluent suburban women. You know, you talk about families, two-car garages, kids playing, you know, better sports, good school districts, all that stuff. And these are people who, when the focus groups are in polling, say, you know, I don't really like politics, but, you know, I want the economy to be good. I care about this, this, and this. And it's almost that apolitical group that Biden has really been effective at messaging towards by kind of having, you know, the values-based return to normal, you know, I'll bring the temperature down, I'll bring people together. <clears throat> That's what voters say they want, or those voters say they want, where Trump keeps going after these, you know, very, very narrow niche issues that are great for his base, but haven't moved the needle, you know, to help his re-election chances yet. One other issue that you know, the Democrats are angry about was the nomination and confirmation of Amy uh, Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Uh, gives the Republicans a 6-3 majority on the court. Uh, Democrats uh, cried foul because four years ago when Justice Anthony Scalia died, uh, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to uh, replace Scalia. However, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would not have a confirmation hearing because he, he, it was an election year, he said. So what changed in four years, and uh, does Biden and the Democratic Party have the right to be angry, Brett? Right, so the argument essentially from Republicans is that they control the Senate and the White House in this case, whereas President Obama uh, did not have a Democratic majority in the Senate, and so Republicans argued that because it was an election year, they had a right to 
to stall the nomination and not give Merrick Garland a hearing. Um, certainly, Democrats cried foul this time around, accused Republicans of hypocrisy and a double standard. But you know, there was nothing they could do to stop them from just pushing through this nomination and confirming Justice Barrett. Um, so I think what Democrats are hoping to turn that into is they're hoping to turn that outrage into uh, voter enthusiasm, get people to turn out at the polls. Uh, certainly some Republicans looked at the death of Justice Ginsburg and thought, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to motivate our supporters uh, while President Trump is sort of down in the polls that maybe this Supreme Court opening, which was a huge motivator for Trump supporters in 2016, maybe we can have the same thing happen this time around. But I think uh, voters over the last four years, as as President Trump and, and Senator McConnell have you know, confirmed a lot of judges and three Supreme Court justices, obviously, Democrats have maybe kind of uh, realized the importance of the courts just as much as Republicans. So people I talk to, you know, they don't really see a tangible benefit for President Trump necessarily that he was able to confirm this judge at the last minute that it would be just as motivating for Democrats. Um, now, Vice President Pence, he when he's out on the campaign trail, he usually campaigns for senators in particular. In the last week, he's been out campaigning for uh, Senator Tillis in North Carolina, Senator Ernst in Iowa, uh, Senator Graham in South Carolina. So he's really trying to to hammer home this message, you know, these senators are the reason we have three Supreme Court justices and all these other conservative judges. So there's maybe a twinkle of optimism among the Republicans that uh, the Supreme Court opening will be kind of a last-minute motivator in some of these close Senate races. But on a national scale, I think Democrats were so fired up about Republicans moving forward and filling that seat that that they'll get just as much of a benefit out of it, if not more, than Republicans were hoping to. Uh, Jake, do you think that if Biden does win the presidential election, that you know, there's talk about maybe him expanding the court? Do you think that'll happen? Uh, you know, uh, that's, I don't think anyone who's making a firm fiction on that uh, is, you know, is, is not listening enough to all the dissent on the Democratic side over whether they should do this. Um but I do think that it's kind of going to be uh, certainly a piece of leverage that they'll use. Um, I think there's more consensus for Democrats in the Senate of getting rid of the filibuster. Um, and so Jamal Bro is saying uh, the dynamic I, that I think you're seeing borne out in the polling with Democrats after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death is what political scientists would call asymmetric polarization or negative polarization, which means that it's it's more the, the other side irking you is motivating you more than what you think would be a motivating factor just in the in the abstract for uh, the side that's doing the thing, basically, to put it simply. So, sure, I mean, the, the process of incoming Barrett, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, drastically changing the country, a lot of that's going to happen anyway because of the fact that Mitch McConnell had this uh, very effective strategy of holding up a lot of these lower, you know, circuit court positions late in Obama's term, and then Trump has filled something like, I think it's like around 300 of them. Um, and it's either getting close to it or it's over it by now. So, you know, those decisions are going to shape our everyday lives a lot more than the occasional case that makes it to the Supreme Court. Um, but I think court packing... 
I, I think it could happen in the sense that, um, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution preventing it. Uh, but I think the Democrats also are weary that it could very quickly become a really big issue for them in the midterms in 2022. And I know we don't want to hear about future elections, you know, uh, close one. But uh, they do have to kind of be careful and think ahead because, uh, you know, it's something that came up in most of our history classes growing up when FDR tried to do it. And I think it still carries a lot of negative baggage for people. So I definitely think that Biden has signaled, he's really said he's not personally in favor of it, but look for it to be a bargaining chip at the very least, you know, if they're able to take both the White House and the Senate. Well, let's uh, conclude this portion of the uh, segment with, uh, you mentioned Hunter Biden, uh, Jake, earlier. Is there, I mean, are the Republicans making too much of this or trying to, you know, deflect attention away from Trump? Or is it one of those cases where there's smoke, there's fire? Um, so easy. I mean, I think there is definitely a well-documented history out there of Hunter Biden you know, having a pretty troubled life. And uh, I think you fairly say trading on you know his father's name um, for some kind of career reboots along the way. That said, I think that it's less the Trump campaign overblowing the Hunter Biden stuff than just they've gone about it in a very bizarre and kind of sketchy way. Uh, there's a great um, uh, story by Ben Smith of the New York Times, and he kind of he used to be the editor of a BuzzFeed. He covers sort of the media industry uh, for the Times, and there's a story about how there were a couple, you know, seasoned Trump allies and in fact one of the lawyers who helped him with impeachment and they tried to pitch this Hunter Biden story to the Wall Street Journal they had a meeting, it was very formal they were going to offer to this Tony Bobolinsky guy to go on the record and if you don't know who he is, that's because the strategy has clearly not worked <laughs> it's also hard to piece together but long story short while they were trying to do it kind of the you know, like old-fashioned, slow and steady way, Rudy Giuliani just came out of nowhere and did this thing that ended up in the New York Post. And that's probably what you've heard more about was the, the New York Post were potentially, you know, having ties to Russian disinformation because it was associated with Rudy Giuliani's, the bizarre backstory of how this laptop ended up at a computer repair shop that was, like, kind of hard to believe. And it was just this kind of lack of coordination that really just made it doomed from the start. Uh, we actually just had a, a scoop by uh, Tom Lobianco and our DC bureau of how Rudy thought he was going to be in a documentary about the Hunter Biden thing. And they were banking on this being this huge October surprise. And it just completely backfired. I mean, I, I just think, you know, uh, and we'd love to hear from your listeners, but I just think the thing is very confusing for a lot of people. And unless you're watching you know, Tucker Carlson and Sean Handy every night, and you listen to Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin and talk radio, and you refresh Breitbart all day, if you're not in that category, you know, you really have a lot of homework to do to just, like, put together the basic characters and plot of this whole thing, none of which, at the end of the day, has actual evidence that ties, you know, Joe Biden getting money or signing off on deals or being involved in these deals. The closest it comes is the Tony Bobolinsky guy saying that there was a meeting at, you know, a hotel in Los Angeles where he got to chat up Biden. And even he says that during that thing, Biden didn't talk business with him. So it's very thin. And I just think that uh, it was rushed and, and gone about in a, in a very haphazard way. So, okay. 
Well, when we return, we'll have some questions from uh, the listeners here on the uh, Parting Shots podcast. Plus, I have a couple sports questions for you guys. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast, a special edition previewing the presidential election. I'm Ken Schott, along with Jake Lutt of Business Insider and Brett Samuels of The Hill. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you. Be well, and please keep reading. Back on the Pawning Shots podcast, I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott, joined by Jake LaHutt of Business Insider and Brett Samuels of The Hill as we uh, preview uh, Tuesday's presidential election. And as I mentioned, we have some questions from uh, some listeners who have posted on my uh, Facebook page uh, uh, yesterday, uh, on Friday. Uh, Mary Ellen uh, Smith-Glasgow is asking, President Trump just commented at a rally that nurses and doctors are profiting off uh, patients with COVID while they risk their lives caring for the sick. What is the political fallout from these false statements? And that's her, that's her question. Jake? Well, I mean, definitely not like a great idea uh, if you have family who are like, you know, nurses and, and, and working in the field. Actually, uh, it, it, it's, it's a good question to bring up because President Obama uh, took notice of this. And when he was campaigning for Biden today, uh, he had a line that was basically like Trump can't fathom someone doing something, you know, selflessly and not to make, you know, a quick buck. Um, Again, I think this goes back to the fact that the Trump campaign is very, very insular 
in how they frame these issues. Now, I watch a lot of Fox News for my job, and this makes sense from that, you know, lens. It doesn't if, you know, uh, you're not, like, in the kind of coronavirus conspiracy landscape. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that, like, is going to work necessarily. But, the you know, it fits that pattern, and... I think it makes people trick if they miss someone like Steve Bannon. I think the, the coverage of Bannon being like a genius might have been overblown. But what Bannon was able to do in 2016 was take Trump's instincts and these kind of random things that he says and does, and he could weave them into kind of, you know, what appeared to be a strategy and at least kind of could coalesce around a narrative. But like this is not one of those examples for sure. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's just another example of kind of what we were talking about earlier, where uh, his rhetoric on the virus and sort of the the way he talks about it just is not helping his own cause. Obviously, like Jake mentioned, he basically teed up Joe Biden and Barack Obama to just, you know, hammer him on these comments and and say, you know, look at the way he's talking about our frontline workers, accusing them of profiteering off this. Uh, Obviously, medical associations have come out to, to say that it's not true and that they find it. Uh, you know, disappointing or offensive that he would that he would talk about this. So it's just sort of another example, you know, where he just has refused to change the way he talks about the virus, and it's uh, it's not something that is really going to resonate with voters as a closing message. I don't think beyond those who are already you know so uh, so dedicated to him that they would vote for him anyway. Right. Thank you, Mary Ellen, for that question. Uh, Sam Hellings uh, writes. We have been warned by government officials that foreign actors are trying to influence elections. Does the average voter have any window to that, perhaps via advertising paid for by foreigners? Or is that something that takes place with the processing or maybe non-processing of ballots after he makes his decision at the booth? What do you think, uh, Brett? Yes, I think, uh, and that's a good question and something that I think kind of gets glossed over a bit in sort of the constant churn of the news cycle. Uh, But I think what people need to be most aware of with that stuff is, you know, what they might be reading on social media, um, you know, if they're seeing certain pro-Trump, anti-Trump, pro-Biden, anti-Biden messages, um, just kind of be wary of where it's coming from. Uh, I think that's sort of the biggest takeaway from 2016 in particular and what we've heard so far now, which is, you know, that uh, Russia and Iran, for example, are, are active on social media or are thought to be behind uh, these sort of threatening emails potentially. Um, so I think, you know, officials in the government have been adamant that that the election itself will be secure and there's been no reason thus far to think that that's not the case. Um, so I think it's just, you know, being cautious with, with what you're reading on social media and, and sort of check things out and take things with a grain of salt instead of jumping to conclusions because we sort of learned from four years ago that, uh, not everything uh, originates on Twitter from from a real person or a person with good intentions necessarily. Yeah. What about you, Jake? Yeah, and, and, and the only thing I'd add to that uh, is, you know, on the advertising part and the the ballot part. Um, so, the the money spent on ads in the twenty sixteen interference campaign by the Russians ultimately wasn't a lot. Um, and really, it's, you know, we as citizens do a lot of the work for them. Uh, it's more about 
a kind of sense of chaos, of not knowing what the truth is anymore, not knowing who to believe, that's the, the, the top-line goal for them. Then it comes to, you know, the narrow interest of whatever country it is and which Canada might be better. Um, that press conference recently that was held with uh, the, you know, Director of National Intelligence and you know, the head of the FBI kind of raised some eyebrows for people in national security when they talked about uh, Iran hacking the Proud Boys and sending out these emails, and they're kind of like, that's not as sophisticated or on par with what the Russians have demonstrated they're able to do. And then there's a lot of debate about what China has been doing with election interference. Um, and just to wrap up on the election front, you know, there's no evidence that, uh, like, votes are being altered or anything like that. But again, you know, we've known since 2016 that actual, you know, like, voter logs were hacked in a number of states, uh, you know, the, the ballot machine infrastructure was, you know, poked at by these countries and in a couple precincts was actually, you know, broken into. And because this got so partisan, it turned into this debate of Democrats really, you know, sounding the alarm bell, arguably in the eyes of critics, overplaying the interference. And then you had Trump and a lot of Republicans saying, you know, this is way overblown and this is just an excuse for the Democrats. And that's, that couldn't help anybody, because I think where we are now is we know a lot more about the interference, but when it comes to the, you know, mitigation and defense efforts, not much has happened. And I think what these countries have learned is, like, you know, they set the ball rolling, particularly the Russians, but, you know, just with the way that we use social media platforms as they were designed does a lot of that work for them. So like Brett said, it's all about, you know, being careful with what you're reading, checking to see, did this come from a publication that actually has editors or something you never heard of? And that's the best you can do. But I think that, you know, no one's, uh, there's no intel out there publicly that, like, votes are being changed or anything. It's just more about this kind of, you know, psychological sense of chaos. That's more the goal than, you know, actually, like, moving numbers around. Appreciate the question, Sam. And finally, from Mitchell Tomaszewski, um, he's asking, um, how this presidential election is affecting the down ballot races on the national level, Jake? Yeah, this is uh, going to be the big one. Uh, so, big picture, this is the Democrats' best chance at accumulating power and actually having full control of Congress and the White House since Obama ran in 2008. What this looks like a tough map for the Democrats with retaking the Senate at first. But the fact is that a lot of these Republicans running for Senate, whether they're incumbents or, uh, you know, trying to run for an open or a special seat, almost all of them underperform Trump by a couple points. So what that means is that even in ostensibly safe Republican seats, take the state of Montana, for example, uh, their you know, Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, has won statewide in Montana before. Uh, and he, he, even if Trump wins Montana in the Electoral College, Bullock could still eke out a win in that Senate race. Uh, Brett mentioned Mark Kelly in Arizona before. He's doing extremely well, probably the most likely Democrat to flip a seat from the Republicans going into it. Georgia is fascinating. I mean, I could talk about this for days, but really Trump has definitely only hurt down-ballot candidates. No one is talking about the Republicans taking back the House. And I think that is a, you know, this kind of speaks for itself. But these Senate races are really fascinating. Would highly recommend reading up on them. Uh, basically, the Democrats, you know, if they win the presidency, would only need four. 
and uh, that would have Kamala Harris be the deciding vote. And then, you know, if they overcome the filibuster, you're talking about not as much gridlock, and, you know, they would be able to enact their agenda until the next midterm elections. How about you, Brett? Yeah, I think Jake summed it up really well there. Um, I think one of the interesting things to watch is, uh, I, from what I gather, I think, you know, the amount of ticket splitting will be sort of at a minimum this time around, which will be kind of interesting to watch and sort of feeds into what Jake is talking about, which is that President Trump has really kind of dragged down some of these these Senate candidates who have, you know, to, in, in his defense, they've really kind of embraced him. There hasn't been much of an effort among any of these vulnerable Republican senators to distance themselves from the president or argue that yeah. they would be a check on a, on a Biden administration or anything. But I think, you know, I'd be surprised if we see a lot of ticket splitting. So, for example, you know, somebody who votes for Joe Biden for president, but then votes for Joni Ernst in Iowa. Um, so, I mean, to that point, I sort of like, you know, as these candidates will essentially go as far as the president can take them. Um, so but certainly uh, I think, you know, right after the presidential election, uh, the Senate control of the Senate will be the next thing on people's minds. And e- either way it shakes out, I think it'll be a really narrow majority for either party. So. Uh, certainly it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I well, appreciate the question, Mitch, and uh, we've avoided it until now. We have some sports to talk about. <laughs> Jake, you uh, posted a story uh, Friday, uh, an insider poll, how fans of each major American sports league are likely to vote. You have some interesting uh, figures to talk about. Can you, can you, let's discuss that. Yeah, so um, this this polling was kind of my baby going back to like the mid, you know, end stages of the summer with our head of data, this guy, Walt Hickey, who used to be at 538. Um, so essentially, this is what's called conditional probabilities, uh, which means that when we ask people, you know, who are you voting for, are you planning to vote, blah, 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 uh, we then come back to them, and as we're tracking the progress of the candidates, we'll also ask them about, like, consumption habits. And if they click one thing, that'll open kind of another set of doors and we'll ask them more stuff. Um, so what we end up getting is kind of some interesting demographic data. So we also had uh, how your drink of choice is linked to who you're voting for in 2020, how different social media platforms and your behavior on them are linked to voting. But with sports, we basically had a calculation of um, how much more likely are you than the average respondent to lean Trump or Biden depending on the sport you watch. So the heaviest to Trump was NASCAR, where they were about 27% more likely to lean towards Trump. The heavily uh, Democratic ones were uh, basketball fans. NBA and college basketball were 17% more likely to vote for Biden. And then, it's sort of it's kind of interesting. So, like, PGA Tour golf was the next Trumpiest at 9%. Uh, NHL hockey was pretty close at 2% leading Trump. Uh, and, and then I think the football one jumps out at a lot of people because of how much Trump has politicized, you know, whether it was the national anthem protests with uh, Colin Kaepernick trying to call attention to, you know, systemic racism, or, you know, uh, more recently, the Trump campaign basically tried to take credit for bringing back Big Ten football. Uh, yet this fan base, which kind of for our highest uh, block of likely voters among the sports fans, football fans just leaned 1% towards Trump. So that's been the margin of error, and that means that football fans are kind of the closest thing we have to a swing state. Uh, you know, maybe at baseball would lean 4% towards Biden, and soccer fans lean 11%. Uh, 
towards Biden. So it's just kind of interesting that, like, you kind of just the way polarization works in our society now, it really does kind of trickle down to a variety of choices we make. Um, and it just it's, it's it's very very interesting to see. Uh, you know, that, like, we basically have sorted ourselves into these little boxes and corners, um, you know, based on our politics and kind of our, you know, the way we experience the world, and we're not aware of it most of the time. So I definitely recommend people checking these polls out because they're really fun to work on. And that's on businessinsider.com. And for you, Brett, a non-political sports question. You're a White Sox fan. The White Sox have brought back Tony La Russa to manage the, this, the, your, your team. He's 76 years old. Do you think was a good move? Uh, I am personally not a fan. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time stewing over this. Um, I think it was just, uh, you know, the White Sox, I am admittedly biased, but I think they're one of sort of the most young and exciting teams in, in baseball right now. And to match them up with a 76-year-old who hasn't managed in nine years and who has, you know, given some comments that would suggest he's maybe a little stuffy about uh, the way some of these younger guys play the game now. It just doesn't seem like a good fit. And, uh, you know, personally, and he's, it just seems like sort of the hire where he's a friend of the owner and the owner wanted to bring him back. And so just kind of a missed opportunity, I think, to explore the wider candidate pool. And personally, I thought that they were almost, you know, leaking that they were considering Larusa to make it more palatable when they hired AJ Hinch amid, you know, the cheating scandal. So, you know, by comparison, it, it makes me kind of long for AJ Hinch to be the White Sox manager, despite uh, the black mark on his record. But uh, I suppose, you know, if, uh, if the results are, are good and then he takes them back to the playoffs, then maybe I, I'll be eating my words and all will be forgiven. But in the immediate aftermath, I found it to be a, a little disappointing, personally. Yeah, well, it reminds me of going back to the 80s. I feel like I'm back in college again with my uh, long hair and all that fun stuff, having Tony Larusa back. So, uh, Jake, one thing without you know, the picture on the cover of your story, Union Hockey, not too bad, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, talking about something uh, I'm probably going to miss for a while, especially when I was back home, loved going to Union games. Uh, family received big holders growing up, and uh, for, you know, your your folks who know some of your show been watching you for a long time. Uh, Joel Beal was my youth hockey coach along with Glenn Sanders. And then I went to Albany Academy when Joel got a coaching job there as one of the early recruits. So uh, love an excuse to give a shout out to Union. Um, I don't think anyone on the editing team or uh, worse on the politics reporting staff with me knew what was going on there. But it was a good photo for a sports fan. You know, story, and I'm glad we could, you know, call some attention to the Union having that great national championship run. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up with uh, a very serious question for both of you. What do we have? What do we see after at the end of Tuesday night, uh, in, or maybe later in the week? If Trump wins, does Biden concede? Or if Biden wins, does Trump concede? What do we see, it's Brett? Oh boy. Uh, well, certainly, I think you know Biden has made clear that he'll accept the results. Um, so I think that is sort of the expectation should that should Trump uh, be declared the winner. If Biden is declared the winner, it's a little harder to say. Um, you know, I think my best guess is that we'll we'll hear the president, uh, as he's already been doing, kind of contest the idea that these mail ballots that 
uh, are still being counted after election day should be counted. So um, whether he he refuses to concede, I am not as confident about that. I I tend to think he will eventually, if, especially if the result is kind of a, a landslide. But at the very least, I would expect him to uh, sort of cast doubt on, on the result if he's not declared the winner. And Jake, I heard a little chuckle there when I asked the question. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, this, 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 I mean, here's the deal. I think there is, you know, a little shy of a 50% chance that the race could be called. Um, like I said earlier, you know, Trump loses North Carolina, loses Florida, something like that. Uh, you know, I think you'd be comfortable saying that Biden is the winner. Um, as it goes on, you know, it's, it's become clear that the White House has a strategy of sort of doing Bush v. Gore in 2000 on steroids. Um, and they are going to have the legal precedent on their side in a couple cases, um, essentially because what that would allow them to do is stop ballots being counted in a couple different ways. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely think that if just the odds of Trump doing a conventional concession speech and all that stuff are pretty low. But I, I think there's such a range of possibilities for how crazy and ugly it could get, um, you know, that it, it's really going to depend, I think, on, frankly, those those states I mentioned of, you know, North Carolina, Florida, uh, where, you know, if you can call a winner there on election night, it could, in theory, stave off a lot of that craziness. But we're prepared for, you know, like a crazy court battle. I mean, that's just coverage-wise. Like, we're ready for uh, an insane number of lawsuits to come in over these, you know, mail-in votes. And uh, that could make this drag on for quite a while. But um, I don't want to get people freaked out. Like, I think, again, you know, because of the, the – if the race, like Brett said, is a, is a landslide, you know, not, not only mood-wise and kind of per- – like persuasion-wise, does become hard for Trump to do that. But also, just getting an injunction and basic stuff like that legally would be very hard. If there's a broad consensus that there was no way he would get to, you know, the 270 electoral votes. So, sorry to have a bit of roundabout answer there because this makes me very very nervous. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get along okay. Jake LaHut, Brett Samuels, I appreciate uh, you guys coming on for a little bit. Uh, you're, I know it's Saturday, spending it as we tape this. I appreciate it once again, and uh, look forward to your coverage, uh, Jake and the Business Insider and uh, Brett in uh, the Hill. Thank you again, uh, gentlemen, and uh, we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks so much, Ken. Always happy, happy to support the Gazette. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. And that wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast, and I'd like to thank Jake LaHut and Brett Samuels for coming on the show. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day and go votes.